begged my wife not to have a home birth. She insisted on a midwife. She wanted to have the baby in the water, more natural and more relaxing for the child, she said. Won't the baby drown if it comes out in the water? My wife laughed at me and informed me that infants have a natural instinct to hold their breath. Okay, but what if ours doesn't? My wife just shook her head at me and told me that she had thought this through and she knew she was making the right decision. I didn't want to stress her out while she was pregnant. We had already suffered two miscarriages and I knew if that happened again it might destroy her. So I just agreed to do what she wanted. When the big day came, my wife was nude and lying in a birth pool. That thing cost me over $400, but it was worth it if it made her happy. The midwife herself had a really striking appearance. She wore her jet black hair in two braids that hung almost down to her knees. Her skin was a deep olive. Her almond-shaped eyes with thick lashes would have been beautiful, but for the fact that her pupils seemed unnaturally large, as if they were permanently dilated. She also wore dark plum lipstick and long red nails, filed sharply like talons. I couldn't tell if they were hers or if they were the fake ones the woman get at the salon. I remember thinking it odd that a midwife would have nails like that. I vaguely worried what would happen if she accidentally cut the baby or my wife's, you know, area. I have a demanding work schedule, so I am ashamed to say that the first time I had ever met the midwife was on the day my daughter was born. She and my wife clearly had developed a close relationship, though. I almost felt like a third wheel the entire time. They seemed to communicate with only glances, subtle gestures, and smiles. I was glad that my wife seemed comfortable, though. That was all that mattered, really. The birth itself was pleasantly uneventful. My wife only had to push three times before my daughter was out. I had expected a lot of screaming, crying, and cursing like you see on TV. But my wife just squatted, furrowed her brows, and did some quick shallow breathing, and it was over. Despite my concerns, it was mesmerizing to watch. After the midwife plucked my baby out of the murky wine-colored water, I kissed my wife's damp forehead and quietly thanked her for the gift she'd given me. Finally, after the midwife had wiped my baby down with a damp cloth and swaddled her, my little girl was finally in my arms. I know every father believes his baby is perfect, and I was no different. She was perfect. Pure. I almost didn't notice when the midwife disappeared into the kitchen for a moment and returned with an empty glass. When she returned, she dunked the glass in the tube where my wife was still lying until it was about half full of blood, water, placenta, and possibly a bit of excrement. The woman then looked at me, eyes sparkling, and asked in a low voice if I would like to partake. I asked what she was talking about, and she told me to drink. That's when I asked the woman in somewhat colorful language if she had lost her mind. My wife just smiled calmly and told me it's perfectly normal to consume afterbirth, and it is even expected in many cultures. The midwife's eyes flickered, and she handed the glass to my wife. With that, my wife downed the vile concoction in a few gulps. I could feel my lunch rising in my throat, so I averted my eyes. Instead, I looked down at my daughter. She was so beautiful that I almost didn't notice the midwife murmuring quietly. As I looked up, I saw her stroking my wife's hair and mumbling in what sounded like German, maybe, or perhaps Greek. I couldn't be sure, but I was very relieved when the woman finally took her things and left. After that, it was just the three of us. The few days after the birth were a bit difficult for my wife. I've heard of pregnancy sickness, but not post-pregnancy vomiting. I joked with my wife that maybe if she hadn't gulped down her own bloody bath water, she wouldn't be feeling this way. Well, when I said that, she gave me a look I've never forgotten. It made my heart shudder and I felt a chill all over. I had earned a dirty look or ten during the course of our relationship, don't get me wrong, but that was almost inhuman. I could have sworn her normally soft green irises turned completely black for a moment. 
My wife began behaving oddly after that. Nothing too bizarre at first, but she would forget things. She walked to the kitchen and then seemed as if she didn't know where she was going. Once she left the bathtub running and almost flooded the whole house. She's always been attentive and alert, even during pregnancy, so it worried me a bit. But I had heard my sister describe going through a period of what she called the mom brain, after having my niece and nephew. The one thing I can say about my wife is that she was a very attentive mother. Before my daughter would even cry, my wife would already have begun walking to her room, with either a breast bared or a diaper in hand. Never both. She seemed to sense what was needed. Still, I believed something was off. After one night in particular, I knew that this was more than mom brain. Have you ever woken up from your sleep because you felt someone might be watching you? It's a very uneasy sensation. I know it happens all the time while people are awake, but for that feeling to permeate your consciousness is something different. You sort of get cold all over in a feeling that you're no longer safe in your bed. It was around three in the morning, I think, when I opened my eyes. I was in bed, but my wife was standing on it looking down at me. I know it was just the angle, but she looked about 12 feet tall. It took me a moment for my eyes to adjust enough to realize that she had a tea kettle in her hand. Even in the relative darkness, I could see steam pouring out of the spout. What are you doing, sweetie? I asked. My voice projected a confidence and calmness, but I was really trying very hard to maintain control of my bladder. She tilted her head down then, but her expression remained unchanged. I boiled water, she said. Want some tea? I was sure she could hear my heart beating from where she was standing. I told her no, more loudly than I intended. She sort of laughed then and shook her head. It wasn't her laugh, though. Her laugh was light, sweet, and dry. Her laugh was light, sweet, and airy. This laugh was deep, hoarse. It had a harshness to it, like an old woman who had smoked since she was a teenager. That's when she reached into the pocket of her robe and pulled out a tea bag. She plopped it in her mouth. Before I could stop her, she raised the kettle and began pouring the steaming water down her throat. I screamed out from a place deep in my soul. I leapt up and snatched it out of her hand, getting ugly burns on my own chest and arms in the process. I don't know if I said it in my head or aloud. I fumbled in the dark for a phone, and all I could think was that I had to call an ambulance. I was sure she'd melted the lining of her neck. That's when my wife got off the bed and turned on the light. I didn't look at her. I couldn't. I almost expected to see her face half-melted. My hands shook from pain and fear as I struggled to punch 911 into the house phone. Honey, she said, it's all right. Look at me. It's okay. Her voice sounded normal. I inhaled and then looked at where she was standing. Her face was wet and dripping, as was the rest of her as the result of our little wrestling match over the kettle. Other than that, she looked fine. Normal. I looked across the room to where the tea kettle was lying on the hardwood floor. I walked to it and touched it and saw that, even though most of the water was gone now, there was still a bit of steam emanating from it. It was still singeing hot. I looked down at my own hand. It looked raw and was starting to blister from where the water had burned me. My wife calmly picked up the kettle and walked downstairs. When she returned, she had several towels, a mop, and a first aid kit. By morning, everything was dry. My hand had been bandaged and was almost as if nothing happened. Incredibly, my daughter slept through the entire incident. I should have left that night, or the next day, but I just kept hoping that things would return to normal. I loved my wife, and I figured we'd get through this. That it was just some mild postpartum or something. It would ease up in a few months. Of course, I was wrong. I've never been more wrong about anything. But I can't go back and change it now. About a week or so after the incident with the tea kettle, 
my wife had awoken before four in the morning to nurse our daughter. Usually I would stay in bed, but this time, after a few minutes, I decided to go to the nursery. The curtains were open and the light from the stars gave the room a dreamy appearance. After my wife finished nursing, she fixed her nightgown and smiled at our baby. From where I stood, I grinned, foolishly, as well. My wife still didn't notice me standing in the doorway. She was completely fixated on our daughter. I didn't say anything because I knew this was bonding time for them, and I didn't want to interrupt. My wife lifted my daughter a bit to press her own face against the small, pudgy cheek. It was beautiful, I thought. I had never seen anything more perfect. That's when my wife, my love, my angel, the woman I chose to share my life with, the woman I chose to have my child, lifted her head slightly and bared her teeth and sank them into my baby's face. I still hear my daughter scream when I close my eyes at night. There are some sounds that stay with you, permeating your thoughts and invading the clean, quiet spaces of your psyche. She didn't just bite her either. She latched on and shook her like a rabid dog. Her mouth foamed and her green eyes rolled back in her head so that only the whites showed. I blacked out, I think. My body ached, but my mind left the scene. The next thing I knew, I was holding my baby, whose face was sticky with blood and tears. My wife was on the floor of the nursery with a broken neck and a small chunk of our daughter's face hanging out of her mouth. I was originally charged with second-degree murder. The prosecutor dropped it to manslaughter after my attorney threatened to parade photos of my daughter's face in front of the jury. After some further negotiation, it was agreed that I wouldn't do any jail time. Instead, I would spend a few hours in a facility where I could get some help. At first, I was in the highly restricted ward. But the docs soon figured out that I wasn't really a danger to anybody, so they moved me to a facility where I had a lot more freedom. I kind of like it here. The only downside is that I don't get to see my daughter as much as I want. My therapist says I am doing well, so I'm hoping to be out soon. My progress reports have been so good that I'm now in Class A, which basically means I just have more privileges, including internet access for 15 minutes a day. Still, I can't leave here, which means I'm stuck missing my baby girl. I can't wait to see her again. It will be hard to look at that scar on her face. She'll have it forever, probably. But she's alive. She's safe. I had taken solace in that fact until a few days ago, when I received a letter through the mail center. Well, I thought it was a letter. Turns out it was just a blank piece of paper folded around a photo of my daughter lying in her crib. Tears burn in my eyes as I remember the way the crib looked in our old nursery. My wife and I had spent months perfecting it choosing the sky-blue wallpaper, the pale pink throw rugs, the wooden rocking chair. The crib simply didn't look the same in my sister's plainly designed guest room. But it didn't matter. It was kind that my sister would think to send me a photograph. That's when I looked at the envelope again and realized there was no return address. I didn't even know you could send mail without that. Maybe my sister had used one of those stickers with her address printed on it and it had fallen off somehow. Or maybe the staff had removed it or switched the envelopes. But why would they do that? At that point, I looked more closely at the photo. I don't know how I didn't notice before. Wrapped around one of the white wooden bars of the crib, I saw olive-colored fingers with long red nails. I think I may have hyperventilated or something. Perhaps I passed out. When I woke up, a nurse was offering me water and asked if I felt dizzy. That's when I decided to write my story. This isn't an exercise in creative fiction. This isn't some sort of cathartic, soul-bearing confession meant to ease my consciousness. This is a warning. My wife is rotting in the ground, but I'll be damned if I lose my baby too. I don't know what you want. I don't know if you're a witch or a demon or the devil incarnate. But I do know that I'll be out of here soon. 
and I guarantee you that I'm more deadly than any ghost or ghoul you've ever encountered. Stay away from my daughter. I told the real estate agent that I didn't care. I just had to leave that house. Keep my deposit, keep the three months advance rent I paid, keep all my stuff. I was never going back there. I wasn't in a great place after I split up with my wife. I don't mean mentally. We'd been together for ten years, married six, and then had been coming for at least three of those years. When I say a bad place, I mean geographically. We sold the house, split the equity, and that left me with just enough cash to secure a deposit on a new rental place. I found a crummy house in a great location. It was out in the sticks, the kind of place with a few houses where everyone knows each other's names, and when you walk into the local pub, the chatter stops and everyone stares at you. The house I rented was older than time itself, made from timber cut from ancient trees. It seemed like everything was falling apart. Rain dropped from the leaking gutters. Even the slightest breeze shook the windows like a gale. It wasn't just overdue renovation work. It was overdue being torn down and built afresh. You know what? It was exactly what I wanted. My wife and I had lived in an ultra-sleek apartment in the middle of Manchester, around 30 miles away. When we split up, I decided I want a fresh start in every way possible. That meant a new job, moving away from office work and doing something outdoors, moving away from the city into the countryside, swapping my plush modern pad with a rackety old cottage. On top of that, I got a dog. LB the Schnauzer, black and white with a beard that I was pretty jealous of. He was 12 weeks old when I got him, and the bond was instantaneous. When LB and I moved into the cottage in Leatherfield, a village near Manchester, it was barely 2 in the afternoon, but the sun was already threatening to disappear. Leatherfield was famous for two things. Courage Ale, a beer brewed in a local brewery, and a poet who, among other works, wrote one called He Who Stared at the Hill. I only knew that because my wife had been poetry mad, and she'd made me help her revise by testing her on lists of English poets and their works. This guy had a tragic past by all accounts. I don't know the details, but I remember there being a pretty heavy story. Something miserable that had happened to him, or maybe by him. I couldn't remember. Had he gone mad? Murdered someone? Been murdered himself? I couldn't remember. I could only remember he who stared at the hill, because it was a haunting line. I hauled all of my crap into the basement and piled it all in the living room. Once I took a look around the house, I found that the old owner had left a bunch of purple post-it notes stuck to various places, giving me pieces of advice. It was stuff like, water tap under the sink, alarm code is 8543. His handwriting was childlike and full of spelling mistakes, to the point where I thought he could have been dyslexic. I was grateful to him. Mostly because in the run-up to me renting the place, I thought he was going to be an arse. The thing was that he'd only bought the house the year before, and he was already moving out. He and his wife had suddenly decided to leave, and they were moving halfway across the country. He hadn't even found a new house or job yet. he just upped and gone. Most of our communication was done by mail. When I came to look around the place, an estate agent with a key had to let me in. It was like the old owner wouldn't step foot near the place. Today, though, it was moving day, so I didn't care. He was gone, and it was my house now. Well, for as long as I paid the rent anyway. He must have come up to take away the last of his things, and that was when he left me the notes. I went from room to room, following the trail of purple notes. When I came to the spare room, I found a waste paper bin, and inside it was hundreds of tiny little pieces of purple. I picked up a few and saw the faint blue marks of his pen. It looked like he'd written a note, then thought better of it and torn it up into hundreds of pieces. 
It was strange, but I had too much to do to get wound up over a little note. I quickly found out that night descended early in Leatherfield, and it wasn't long before the cottage was swamped in darkness. This was when I realized how truly remote I was. My closest neighbor was ten minutes' walk up a winding country road. At the back of my house there was a wide plain of grass that was completely untamed. In the distance it rose into a hill crest that seemed to form a dark shape against the night sky. A little wooden fence separated my garden from the wild fields. If someone wanted to murder me out here, there'd be no witnesses. Call me morbid, but that's how my mind works. Soon, I'll be walked to the glass door at the back of the house and paced nervously back and forth. I'd read a few puppy books before getting him, so I was pleased to see the signs that he wanted to go outside to pee. That meant that he was getting the hang of house training and I wasn't going to have any yellow wet patches to clean up inside. I told him what a good boy he was and opened the door to let him out. Albie sprinted down the stone steps and into the small garden, and then stopped, abruptly. I stood at the back door to make sure he didn't run off or anything, but there was no need. Rather than run, Albie seemed like he was paralyzed. Something came over me then, a chilly feeling, like cold fingers were stroking my arm. I called Albie, but he couldn't come in. I tried to make out his shape in the darkness, but his coat was so black that he melded into it. In fact, everything seemed to meld into the darkness around him. I don't think I'd realized just how dark it was going to be, away from the city lights and stuff. It unnerved me. I felt like everything could be watching me from out in the wild plains, and I'd have no idea. I kept thinking I'd look out onto the grass and see a pair of eyeballs illuminated under the moonlight. I called Albie in, but he couldn't come. I zipped up my coat. Time to man up. I crossed the stone steps and walked into my garden, and then I saw it. Albie was in front of me, but his body was completely rigid, and his tail was between his legs. He wouldn't take his eyes off something to my right. I turned my head and followed his stare, then saw a shape in the darkness. I felt a split second of utter panic, where my whole body tingled. I looked to my cottage, to the safety of the light, and thought about grabbing Albie and running. And then I realized that the shape in the darkness, about waist height, was just a chair. Man, I was an idiot. I'd seen the chair earlier, after all. The old owner had left a deck chair out back, facing out onto the plains. Whether he used to sit there and stare out into the grass or something, I don't know. But that's all it was, a deck chair. I grabbed Elby and headed back inside, and nothing happened that night. The next morning, I started sorting all of my things out. Hanging clothes, building flat back bookshelves, and stocking the kitchen. I worked my way room by room, and it was only late afternoon that I got to the spare room. Again, I noticed the waste paper bin with the shredded post-it note inside. There was something strange about it. I just couldn't understand why a simple post-it note was torn into so many pieces. If you were throwing away a note, you'd just screw it up, wouldn't you? Why had the old owner gone to so much trouble to tear it into so many pieces? I thought about picking out all the pieces and putting them together like some enormous jigsaw puzzle. That's how curious I was. Realizing that there were so many pieces it would have taken me days. I shelved that idea. There wasn't much to do in Leatherfield by all accounts, but I didn't have to resort to homemade jigsaw puzzles yet. My luck was in, though. On the windowsill in the spare room, next to a window that looked out onto the untamed fields of yellow-green grass, was a blank pad of purple post-it notes. On the top blank square, I saw the edgings of a pen. It seemed that the old owner had pressed down so hard that his pen had marked the sheet below, the one he'd been writing on. I couldn't help the grin on my face. It would be mystery solved pretty soon. The next morning I went into the center of Leatherfield Village and bought tracing paper from the post office. I got back home and went to work, 
I laid a sheet of paper over the pen-etched post-it pad and gently colored it with a crayon until the message was revealed. I didn't know what to think. It wasn't a helpful message about water taps or radiators like any of the post-it notes. This had only six words. I'm sorry. Never look at him. Something about the note made my heart pound. Albie must have picked up on how I was feeling because she sprinted out of the spare room, and soon I heard his little feet pounding down the wooden staircase. I followed him downstairs where I found him behind my couch, curled up into a ball, shivering. This made me paranoid. I felt like I had to run around the house and check all the doors and windows. I briefly thought about grabbing a knife from the kitchen. I don't know why. I had nobody to use it on. Nobody was here. Instead, I picked up Albie. I gave him some dry food and I played games with him for a while until he seemed his normal self. By this time, it was night again, a time of the day that Leatherfield seemed to welcome in open arms. It was strange. In this remote, little area of the world, it was like the wind slept all day and then waited until nightfall before it teased out of its hiding place, then moaned as it passed through the old timber of the house. After a night of watching DVDs, my TV aerial wasn't working, and it was going to be weeks before the internet providers could make it work out here. It was bedtime. Albie seemed restless now. He was making little groaning noises, and he kept pacing, like he couldn't settle. I was pretty sure that it was because he'd been holding his bladder for hours. Every time I tried to coax him to the back door to let him out, he'd refuse to move. Now, though, I was tired, and I needed him to empty his little dog bladder. I picked him up, opened the back door, and went outside. When I did, I was struck by the utter silence that greeted me. There was no wind tonight, no swaying of the grass stalks, nothing. Just darkness. A complete smothering of black that made it impossible to see where my garden ended and the plains of grass began. It was kind of like being lost at sea in a way, as if it was an ocean of black and I was trapped in it. I felt like if I was ever stupid enough to walk onto the plains, I'd never find my way back. The cottage would just magically get further and further away, and I'd become more and more lost the harder I tried to find it. I encouraged Albie to go into the garden. He took a few tentative steps, then a few more, until finally he was near the grass. I smiled, glad that soon I'd be able to go to bed. And then Albie bolted. He shot past me and into the house, leaving me all alone outside. It was like something had spooked him. But what? Then I saw it. To my right on the deck chair facing the fields was a man. He was old and almost hunched over in the chair. He stared out onto the fields of grass with the utmost unbreaking concentration, as though he hadn't even noticed that I was there. Something deep down inside me told me that I needed to keep it that way, that he should never notice me. I couldn't let him. But then another feeling bubbled up, one that said this man was on my property and that he was old and that I should just tell him to get the hell out of there. I risked another look at him. The half-moon had sneaked out from beyond the clouds now, giving the faintest outline of light. It was enough for me to see the man's pale, wrinkled skin, small, black-looking eyes. What was he looking at? What did he see out there in the darkness, on the grass plains that seemed to breathe the darkness from the sky? What caught his attention so deeply? I was openly staring at him now, but the longer I looked, the more my flesh crawled. I had to say something. I couldn't just let him sit there in the garden in the middle of the night, staring out into the fields. The words of the note struck me again. I'm sorry. Never look at him. That's what the old owner had written to me, and then he thought better of it and tore up the note. But why? Why shouldn't I look at the man? My skin tingled. A feeling of cold dread hit me. Deep, utter panic. Then nothing but silence. Silence and darkness. Not even the wind dared speak up. And then the man started to turn his head toward me.